Well, good morning. Everybody awake? Everybody awake this morning? It's 927 on Super Bowl Sunday, so we're going to get you guys out of here on time. Somebody's got some barbecuing to do, I'm sure. Um, it's funny, just before service, I was asked uh, if I was going to be speaking on something Valentine's related. Obviously, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. And I said, well, it's either that or Super Bowl. And I think that there's probably more biblical context to speak on marriage than football. So um, that's what we're going to do. We're going to specifically look at marriage, um, which I understand will apply more to some than others. But there's something really awesome about the way that God uh, uh, has developed marriage, for one, intentionally with a purpose. And even if you're not married, by understanding why and how God has orchestrated marriage, we learn a lot about God and how he reveals himself to us. So there's something here for everybody. Um, Unfortunately, I think what we see in today's culture is that we have lost, and I'm saying we generally, the culture has lost the, the sacredness that marriage is supposed to hold the reverence that we should have for it. And um, God's word has a lot to say about the institution of marriage. Obviously, God is the one that created marriage. He intended it for a purpose. And we all probably know at some point, I don't know if you've seen in your bulletins what we've titled uh, this message here this morning. When someone's getting married, we hear the, the kind of term that they're tying the knot. And, uh, and that's, there's some symbolism behind that. But, but here this morning, what I want us to focus on is, is what comes after the knot's tied after you're married. So this morning, uh, we're going to focus on tightening the knot. What happens years down the road after you've been married? Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe there's some, some issues that you're struggling to reconcile between you and your wife. Maybe there's a lack of intimacy. Maybe there's um, just these things that we need to tighten up. We need to shore up our marriages We need to make sure that our marriages are built upon the foundation of God's word because when our marriages are in line with the will of God, not only will our marriages be joyful, which I understand that not all marriages are joyful, but they can and should be, but also our marriages will serve as a symbol of Christ and his love for us. So today we're going to go through pretty quickly three different biblical truths Uh, Out of many, this is not an exhaustive list of biblical truths regarding marriage, but we only have so much time this morning. So we're going to look at three biblical truths relating to marriage that will, uh, if we understand them correctly and apply them to our marriages and our lives, these will certainly bless your marriage. So as I already mentioned, if you're here and you're not married, one thing that I hear often, and we probably all hear this in, in maybe other, circum, other uh, within marriage, but also in other avenues of our life, this thought process of, man, I wish I knew then what I know now. This concept of, man, I've, I've been struggling my marriage for 20 years, and I've just learned this truth, and if I would have known this in year one through three, we would have saved ourselves a lot of heartache. So even if you're not married here today, The biblical truths that we're going to talk about should and will help you in the future if marriage ever becomes uh, a part of your journey through this life. I think it's wise for us to, and, and this applies to so much more than marriage, but I think it's wise for us to not wait for a certain season of life to come before we begin preparing for it. 
There's so many things that we should be in God's word, understanding, even if it doesn't apply to me right now, I don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. So when God is telling us and teaching us about marriage, we should be uh, hearing it, we should be learning it, and we should be listening to it. We need to be preparing ourselves for whatever comes next. So the three biblical truths that we're going we're gonna to go through one by one, that if we follow these, can bless your marriage. Truth number one. I think we have slides. Truth number one. Marriage was created and designed by God to be good and purposeful. Most people uh, in this world, they like the idea of, of being in love, having a spouse, having a companion, someone special, someone to spend your time with. Share your deepest, darkest secrets. Maybe start a family. Marriage is so much more than this romantic feeling of love that we can share with someone. And I think it's important for us to realize that these feelings are important, but this isn't what marriage is. We need to understand that as uh, significant as feelings can be, Feelings change due to the ups and downs of life. So the thing that keeps us together is a choice. It's a choice to remain committed. I've heard it said, me and my wife, sometimes we like, we'll listen to like marriage podcasts and things like this online. There's a lot of great resources out there. If you're struggling with just about anything, there's resources for it nowadays. But we're, we listen to these podcasts, not because our marriage is in trouble, but because we always want to be learning. We always want to be figuring out what can we be doing better? What are some little tools that we can learn? And one thing that I hear often is this concept of there's seasons of uh, my marriage, it's usually the, the person speaking, reflecting on 30, 40, 50 years of marriage. There were seasons where I didn't even like my husband that much. And I think it's important for us to understand the distinction that you might be in a season due to circumstances where you don't like your husband or your wife that much, but you can love your spouse without maybe liking them in that moment. You see, love is a choice, it's a commitment, while liking someone is an emotion, and emotions are subject to our circumstances. This is one of the problems that we see with marriage in our culture is that we base everything off of feelings and emotion. And as soon as a circumstance changes, as soon as our finances change, a loss of a job, maybe um, a disagreement, and those feelings now go away, the entire foundation of the commitment that was made is shattered. There was a poll done um, surveying 2,000 married couples, and what they found was that simply the, 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 the difference of being the term hangry, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, where you're, you know when you're angry, but it's really just because you need to eat something? You should never make any important life decision while you're hungry. But simply the fact of being hangry led these 2,000 married couples into an average of four marital disputes or fights a week. A week. So, circumstances can and do affect our mood, 
our emotions, our feelings, and our mood may affect the way that we view our spouses. Maybe you're not necessarily as patient as you need to be in this moment. Neither of those things should change the commitment or the love that we have for them. And that needs to be the foundation upon which our marriages are built. We live in a culture that is slowly but surely moving away from the sacredness of marriage. Through the embrace of uh, cohabiting while single, infidelity, scandals among leaders, media's portrayal, uh, portrayal of quick and easy divorces. But biblically, those who are married or, or want to be married must remember that it requires sacrifice and it is a serious commitment that God has designed. When we make a commitment to something, it's a constant choice that we make to be dedicated to that cause, whether we feel like it or not. We all struggle with commitment in some areas of our life, whether it's committing to a diet, creating better study habits, getting up early to spend that little bit of time in your Bible, working out, going to the gym. Making commitments is a normal part of our lives, and unfortunately, statistically, we are really bad at following through with them. Two years ago, 41% of Americans decided to make New Year's resolutions. Only 9% followed through, through the year, with that resolution. That was two years ago. And what I find almost, I think, equally alarming is the fact that this past year, the number of uh, Americans who decided to make a New Year's resolution dropped from 41% down to 29%. It almost seems as though we've actually given up We've chose to refrain from making commitments because we've already internally accepted that we're not going to be able to follow through with them. And oftentimes I think the reason why we stumble so much and we struggle with following through with these commitments, whatever it may be, is because we're relying on ourselves too much. As believers, we need to be quicker to ask the Lord for his strength than us trying to do it on our own. We cannot do these things apart from God as our source of strength. In Ephesians 5.25, says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Paul here is calling for husbands to love their wives in a similar manner as Christ has displayed his love for the church. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. The outcome is that the church, in God's eyes, is free and clean from blemish. Our marriages in comparison, should be a reflection of Christ's love and his love for the church. As a spouse, we should be dedicated to praying for our spouse. Oftentimes, we, we see this, this marital union as 
um, you know, the, the worldly benefits, you know, you're going to, you know, you get the tax break, you get all these different things. There's some financial stability that can come from merging two bank accounts into one bank account. But it's so much, there's a, a huge spiritual component to a married couple coming together. Married couples are a team and are dedicated or should be dedicated to making sure either spouse is ready for eternity. Husbands, we have a responsibility to take care of our wives. I think back to, to the beginning, the Garden of Eden. We see a problem that Eve ate something she wasn't supposed to. And all of humanity was cursed. But if we read this, we see something alarming. In Genesis, it says, She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. You see, the problem here is that Adam was standing next to his wife who was being tempted by Satan and he did nothing. In that moment, Adam should have stomped on that snake to save his wife. That's what's called of us. Not to sit by passively and allow harm to our spouse. In marriage, we need to put our spouse first. And, and this convicts me. Because I know just how easy it is for me in my own selfishness at 3 a.m. when my babies are crying to pretend that I'm asleep. <laughs> my wife's coming second service, so I'm going to say that now. <laughs> the, I did the dishes yesterday, isn't it your turn today? When I compare my level of willingness to sacrifice to that of Jesus and what he was willing to sacrifice for his bride, I'm confronted with my own sin and need for growth. This is a daily decision that I need to make to put my wife before me. Remind yourself every day that your marriage is not based on feelings, but is rooted and orchestrated by God himself and that your marriage has the power to reveal to others the very love of God. Ask yourself this morning, is your marriage demonstrating the same selfless love and care that we see with Jesus in the church? Upon reflection, I realize that I have a lot of room for growth in my marriage. But thankfully, the Lord will strengthen me, sanctify me, and to help me become an even better husband, father, and partner to my wife. The challenge first comes from acknowledging our shortcomings, removing the blinders, of denial, and accepting that we can't do this outside of the help of God. The second truth is that marriage means having a partner in all areas of your life. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, it says this, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
Jesus here is quoting from Genesis, telling his disciples that in the beginning, God created both man and woman to be united as one flesh. This unison together is indicative of each person leaving the protection of their existing, their prior household, their father and mother, in order to be joined forever with their spouse as their own unit. In an instant, upon marriage, your spouse becomes united with you, while those who raised you are, are still your mother and father, but they're now moved into a different position in your life. And this can be an incredibly hard dynamic to navigate in the early years of marriage, especially at times where maybe there's a big life decision, a job change that may require you moving away from a certain family of origin. But verse 6 focuses on the fact that in marriage, the two individuals become one flesh, a union that is spiritual as well as physical. The physical union of a married couple is, is an important part. However, a married couple becomes one in many ways that can be seen outside of just this physical union. Whenever a spouse is lacking in anything, whether it's finances, whether it's um, energy, time, all of these things, because of the connection that we have with our spouse, affect us. So when, when my wife Melanie is, is um, struggling with something or is lacking in something, that's going to affect me as her husband because we're connected. Her problems are my problems, and my problems are hers. Our partnership is present in our schedules, our goals, the things that we own. Another way that we can see this partnership displayed in marriage is in all the things that are done jointly. Whether you're together on a mortgage, you share a bank account, you file taxes jointly. Households are now combined. If you have children, this partnership is demonstrated in the fact that your children literally share the two of your DNA. The child is a perfect representation of the oneness that the married couple has. As it relates to this, you're getting married and you're now your own unit and you're leaving your father and mother. It's interesting, I think a successful marriage begins with leaving, which that sounds almost, almost wrong, but it's true. A successful marriage begins with leaving. In effect, when you marry, all other relationships in your life change. Now, this doesn't mean that you're leaving and you're never going to talk to them again and, you know, you're, they're dead to you or anything like that. It's that we have a structure of relationships in our life, our relationship with God, our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with our father and mother, our relationship with our children, friends, all the way down. When you get married, your relationship with your wife or your husband moves above all except Christ. Even those closest to you, that of your parents. Genesis 2.24 says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Again, this doesn't mean that when you get married you're no longer a son or a daughter or a sibling or a close friend with someone. But what it does mean is that you have a new primary responsibility and that is to your spouse 
In this one passage, Jesus gives us three reasons why married couples should remain married. We pull back up Matthew 19. First, it says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. The creator determines what is the ideal in marriage. And since he created one male and one female originally, he intended for them to have one mate. Marriage was created by God when it was just Adam and Eve. So clearly the design for marriage wasn't going to be this process of divorcing, always trying to find someone better. Adam and Eve were intended to partner together in marriage for their entire life. The second, verse 5, says, And said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The basic element in marriage is a, a covenant or this contract that a husband and wife make with each other, and that uh, contract involves two becoming one. You can't undo when that's brought together. I, I appreciate sometimes in these, these they're, they're getting really creative in all the different ways that they're really saying the same thing in these wedding ceremonies nowadays, but blending two different colors of sand together or um, intertwining multiple colored ropes together. And once they come together, the, the thought process is that you can't separate these pieces of sand back to their originals. The third thing is so, uh, verse six says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God ordained marriage as the strongest bond in all human interpersonal relationships so that it should not be broken. If we think of it this way, um, you ever seen those like three-legged races where you and a partner, you like tie a rope around your inside legs and you guys have to run somewhere, or it's like a race, and the whole concept is the two of you have to work together. These two people are united together and have to cooperate with one another and move in the same direction. In a three-legged race, you and your partner, you're connected, therefore only really having three working legs between the two of you, and this is, this is similar in the way that when we get married and become one, or when we become connected to our spouse... We're running the race of life together as one entity. And in that three-legged race, if my desire is to go this way and my wife's desire is to go that way, we're not going to make it very far in that race. We'll be constantly bickering with each other. Instead of moving forward, we'll be stuck there fighting with each other, trying to determine who's going to get their way. And this is, unfortunately, the model of marriage that we see far too often. And this is what leads to a lot of um, unnecessary divorces. The unwillingness for one to say, okay, we'll go your way. Or maybe the other way around. When we're unwilling to extend grace and mercy, when we don't have a common goal in our marriage, a common main objective that we have our eyes set on in pursuit of, you can't go anywhere. And, and, and to, to resolve to have a marriage that would be successful, 
within this concept of a three-legged race. This doesn't happen accidentally. This isn't by chance. It requires intentional communication between a husband and a wife, sitting down for their coffee, asking deep questions to each other, working through these different things. What is it that you want to accomplish over this next year? What's the biggest goal you have in life right now? What are you struggling with? Is there anywhere in our marriage, our relationship, that you're, you're, you're feeling a rub? What can we be working on? Just like any other thing in our life, a healthy marriage takes work. But it's a joyful, rewarding work that blesses us, but also, when done, demonstrates a much deeper Christ-like love to the world around us. Truth number three, your spouse is an imperfect person, just like you. We all make mistakes in life, and we have to live with the consequences. In marriage, there's plenty of room for mistakes, considering each person is always changing, growing, going through their own issues and struggles. While married, we share in our spouse's decisions and also their mistakes. My mistakes affect my wife. My wife's mistakes affect me. Therefore, we are put in this position to live out being gracious, forgiving, and merciful as a reflection of how Christ has dealt with us. I think of uh, Ephesians 4.32 that says, Be kind and compassionate to one another. And this is applying to how we're just supposed to respond to people. How much more should it apply to the person closest to me, that of my spouse? It says forgiving each other. There's the ask. There's what we're supposed to do. Why comes next. Just as Christ, God forgave you. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. When our spouse has hurt us, maybe hurt our feelings, maybe they've ignored us all day. I don't, I don't know what that necessarily might look like. Maybe treated you poorly. Maybe they're, going, maybe they're hangry. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Feed them. Take them to, to lunch. But the last thing that we want to do is be tenderhearted towards them. Right? The last thing we want to do when, when we're being treated poorly is to be the bigger person in that moment. And I understand that. But here's the challenge. God has been kind and tenderhearted towards us in the midst of our own sin against him, and we need to be able to display the same type of love. At that moment, we tend to think, no, I'm not going to be the bigger person. They need to come and apologize to me, and then we'll reconcile. They're the ones that are in the wrong here, not me. But again, God has been infinitely more patient, kind, merciful to each and every one of us while we were far worse. There's going to be days where I have to rise up and be the one to break the cycle of anger and frustration. And there will be days where Melanie, my wife, is going to have to be the one to be the bigger person, rise to the occasion, and extend grace to me when I don't deserve it. We have to remember that our spouses are imperfect people, people with real emotions and real frustrations, and we need to be willing to extend them mercy and grace 
The same that God has done for us. Another common, I think, in this same line of uh, thought, but kind of on the other side of the spectrum, a common marital mistake is putting your spouse in the place of God. We may love our spouses, we, we may find them incredibly perfect for our lives, we wouldn't trade them for anyone in the world, but they are sinners just like us. Therefore, they can and likely will disappoint us at some point. And it's important for us to be able to see our spouses as someone that we can trust, discuss intimate things with, and be unashamed in front of, but only God can be the refuge that we need. Making our spouse an idol is easy. It can happen without us even noticing it. We can make our wives or our husbands an idol and we expect them to take on the attributes that only God possesses. Do we expect our spouse to fix our anxiety or our depression? And then when they fail to do so, we become angry or disappointed in them because they cannot bring me the relief that I so desire. We want to be able to look to them in those desperate times of pain and fear and find complete comfort and healing for my problems. It's not wrong to look to people like our spouses, our husbands, and our wives for support. But if we only look to our spouses to bring us complete healing or to rescue us from life's challenges, we will be sorely disappointed. Why? Because they are incapable of doing that. We need to be careful that we're not expecting from our spouses things that can only come from the Lord. Our spouses are adopted sons and daughters of God, just like us, but are only a reflection of Christ. Therefore, they are not Christ and don't have the ability to be the refuge in which we need. So, we've looked at three truths that, if understood, can bring blessing to our marriages. The first was that marriage was created and designed by God to be good and purposeful. We as a society need to raise up our understanding of the commitment that is being made on an altar before God in marriage. I want you to think for a second, just as we're kind of coming to a close here, what would it be like if Jesus modeled his love for his bride after our model of marriage in our culture? Here in California, we're a no-fault divorce state. What if Jesus just decided, out of feelings, I just, I've fallen out of love. I don't really like you that much today. Maybe enough's enough. I don't like the church anymore. Do you think that Jesus is always pleased with the actions of the church? I don't. Fortunately, Jesus' commitment to the church far supersedes our actions. Jesus has made a commitment, a love for the church, so much that he was willing to die for it. The second truth, marriage means having a partner in all areas of your life. Often when I have the, the privilege of performing a wedding ceremony, I like to mention the reality that from the moment a man and woman come together in marriage, that doesn't mean that life's not going to throw them curveballs, that everything's going to be perfect in their life for, forever. But what it does mean 
is that from the moment you get married, you will no longer have to traverse the obstacles of life on your own. You will have a partner to support you, to lift you up and encourage you, and sometimes just to sit in the valley with you. I hope we see our spouses this way. If you haven't said it recently, I encourage you, go home today. Find a, a special way to thank your spouse for being your partner in life, your go-to support, your, your biggest fan. Thank them. The last truth. Your spouse is an imperfect person, just like you. Amen? That was a test. If you're a man and you just said that, you're going to be watching the Super Bowl in the garage. But it's accurate though, right? We need to dismiss the expectation of perfection and extend grace when needed, just as God has extended grace to us. I always think back to the day that me and Melanie got married. Uh, this June will be eight years, which is crazy. That was a quick eight years. But this June will be eight years. It was like 103 degrees outside. It was in the direct heat, direct sun. But honestly, I don't even remember it being hot. I heard from every single one of my guests that it was hot and that they were just about melting. But all I remember was being up there with my soon-to-be wife listening to the words of Pastor Randy as he shared some words of wisdom and encouragements with us. One thing he said that stood out above everything else was when he defined marriage as an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. This is what marriage is, an unconditional commitment, a commitment that is not based on merit or whether the other person is deserving at that moment, unconditional like the love that God has for us, an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. How thankful I am that through Randy's wise words, my wife began our marriage understanding that I'm imperfect. I'm glad that there was not a, a veil there where there's an expectation of perfection and that I knew from day one that even in my perfection that she loved me. She may not always like me, like when I leave my shoes in the middle of the hallway. It may not feel like she loves me, but I know that she does. And just like when I stumble into sin, it's easy for me to fear that God may not love me. But by the amazing mercy and grace of God, God has made an unconditional commitment to his church filled with imperfect people. I pray that today as we leave, we see marriages thrive, future marriages thrive, children raised by godly parents modeling Jesus Christ and his love for the church. Godly families, I truly believe, can transform this city. The family unit has power when it operates as God has designed it to do. Amen? Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and thanks, we come before you humbly, knowing that we're undeserving, that we have faults, but Lord, in that we're reminded that you love us despite our faults, in our imperfections, in our failures. God, you meet us, that you extend us mercy 
and grace. Lord, I pray that 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 transforms us. And that's modeled in the way that we, we respond and the way that we treat other imperfect people. That we don't hold other people to a standard that you don't hold us to. Lord, help us. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.